0: with me our father we want to delight in your word and so we ask God that you would bend our hearts to hang on the truth of your word Lord that you would conform our minds and transform them by your word and Lord we want to submit our lives to the truth and the authority of your word. And so, God, would you work in us? Would you work through your word? Lord, would you anoint my lips and my words, anoint our ears to hear, our hearts to love and our minds to comprehend your word? I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> there, uh, there are some texts that pastors can't wait to preach, and then there are other texts that pastors don't want to preach. In fact, given the opportunity, they will shy away from preaching those texts. And Matthew chapter five verses 27 through 32 describes the latter. One benefit, though, of expositional preaching is that it removes the preference of the preacher by preaching from the whole counsel of God's word. And so while I would not naturally gravitate to preaching this text, uh, we're here this morning because we decided and prayed about walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with some incredibly difficult truths. And he really has a way of getting right to the heart of what we do and say and think doesn't he? We see that. We've seen it already as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount thus far. I mentioned that we would be walking through chapter five for the next nine weeks. In the beginning, I said that and that it would lead us right up into the time of Lent. I mean, Advent, excuse me. And so in Advent, when we look at when we start Advent, we'll stop at at the end of chapter five and then at the beginning of the year, we'll pick up in Matthew chapter six. But Honestly, this morning, I wish I could skip this text. That's just me being honest, all right? But as it is, it's a challenging word, and God's word is authoritative in our lives. And it's absolutely necessary for our purity as followers of Christ. so my prayer for us this morning is that Jesus' teaching will challenge believers, challenge us, to guard the purity of our thoughts and actions so that we might honor God with righteous living. That we would, that Jesus' teaching would challenge us to guard the purity of our thoughts and actions so that we might honor God with righteous living. The societal fabric of Western culture has been changed in the course of my lifetime greatly, but I would say over the last 40, maybe even 50 years, lust, adultery, and divorce aren't merely tolerated anymore, but they're actually celebrated. We live in a land that celebrates sin and it demeans righteousness, but honestly, this isn't anything new, is it? Every culture since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden has been marked by this one common malady that we pursue sin. In one sense, a cultural disdain for God's law and righteous living isn't a surprise, but in an inc- but, but it is a surprise that, that there's an increasing speed of immoral degeneration in our culture. This is the lesson of history that humanity continually forgets the further into sin a person or a people traverse, the greater the propensity for a skewed worldview of morality, and the more deplorable our sinful actions become. So the farther we walk down, we traverse this path of sinfulness and immorality, the greater the greater our propensity for a skewed worldview of morality. The greater or more decadent a culture grows in its sin and toleration of sin. The further away from God they walk. And it's exponential and it compounds. And so this morning, I want us to see what Jesus is speaking to us about as the church, as disciples. First, he's speaking to us and he, he, he calls us to see the urgency of guarding purity. Purity. The urgency of guarding purity. So follow along if you found your place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. I'm going to read through verse 32, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus quotes the seventh commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. He says, you shall not commit adultery. In fact, he says, you have heard that it was said. Now, if you remember, verse 20 is kind of the, it's the key to helping us understand what Jesus is saying throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, especially this chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus calls us to surpassing righteousness, exceeding righteousness. That is, a deep obedience, one that is not just about conforming our actions to following God, but one that is, it comes from the heart, and it's, it's action that is impacted by the heart. And so when our heart is set on pursuing God and walking with God, then consequently our actions are changed. We see this, it's the same way when we're raising our children, right? When we discipline our children, we're not trying to just conform behavior, right? We're trying to reach to the heart so that ultimately behavior is changed. We're trying to address the heart issue. Excuse me. And that's what Jesus does. He addresses the heart issue here. And the heart issue deep down, it's not about what the Pharisees are claiming they're able to do by not committing adultery, but it's about what's happening deep within their heart. And so the law, the Ten Commandments, they really have a twofold design. First, they're to guard our lives from sin. The law guards us from sin. But secondly, kind of the the opposite side of the same coin is the law also teaches us holiness and righteousness. The law teaches us how to actually live in covenantal joy with God, our Father. And so it leads us to experience this covenantal joy and relationship with God so that we would live righteously. And so Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, verse 27, but I say to you, verse 28. This is that language that we said last week. It's the formula For Christ's supremacy. Jesus is standing here. Teaching his disciples saying. Now you've heard that the the scribes and the Pharisees. Have have said here's what the law means. But listen this is what I'm telling you. I'm saying to you that it goes beyond that. Jesus isn't reinterpreting the law. He's giving the correct interpretation of the law. He's clarifying the intent of the law. Which the scribes and the Pharisees have dismissed. And so when, when he says I say to you. He's actually saying to them, thus saith the Lord. This is what God means. This is what he says. This is what God's law is intended to mean. So hence the reason why Jesus would say, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so the question of this text this morning is what constitutes adultery? Is it only physical? Or is there more? Is adultery, does adultery have a, a mental component as well that Jesus is speaking to? We all know the disastrous consequences of adultery. Families are destroyed. Lives are ruined. Trust is broken and love is profaned. The covenantal relationship of joy between a, a husband and a wife vanishes. Adultery attacks the very core and, and intimacy between a husband and a wife God calls it sin because it defiles the union of one flesh before him. And so in verse 28, Jesus warns. But I say to you. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he's addressing the men there. And primarily, this does address the men of the day, but I think in our day, it can also address women. Jesus says, adultery begins in the heart. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he says. What does lustful intent mean? One writer, Bill Mounts, his words I think are helpful. He encourages us, we've got to distinguish between temptation and sin. Temptation isn't sin. And so the dismissed passing thought is not sin. But he goes on to say, it's not the first look, but the second. It's not the passing through of a thought, but the cherishing of the thought. It's not the glance, but the stare that makes temptation into the sin of lust. I appreciated Dallas Willard's definition of this as well. Dallas Willard says we all desire to look at beauty. And this is the reality of how God has created us. We do. We desire to look at beauty from the earth of God's creation, the sky, to his people that he has created, to different cultures. We desire to look at beauty. But he says when we look at beauty to desire, that's lust. You see the difference? It's when we dwell upon it. The idea is, as Jesus is saying, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. The idea is that everyone who keeps on looking. It's one who looks with the intent of continuing the imagination and and dwelling on the thought. He says this one has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, the heart is where sin resides. That's why in Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart come Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. So Jesus isn't identically equating lust and the physical act of adultery. But he is saying that lust is adultery. It's adultery of the heart. And it's equally condemnable before God. There's a reason Jesus addresses this, and it's because it's a it's a common sin problem in the heart of man. Jesus is saying we must be vigilant to guard against this adultery of the heart. Just a word of practical challenge to mothers and fathers, especially fathers. I think fathers need to teach their young men that having an interest in the opposite sex is it's natural, that it's according to God's divine design in his created order. But this doesn't mean that that a woman is to be treated as a visual object to fuel a sinful desire. For men and women, young and old, it's important to consider what we look at on the Internet, what we watch on TV. Marketing tries to entice us through things like car and workout magazines, through provocative images in the grocery line or in commercial spots on TV. The list could go on and on. These things prompt unholy desires within our hearts. And Jesus is saying all of these things, this lustful direction, intention, it's detrimental to our hearts before God. And if we're married, it's detrimental to those that, it's detrimental to the relationships that we have with our spouse. And so we live in a culture where sexuality is celebrated, where dads give their young sons swimsuit calendars that hang on the bedroom walls, where parents allow their children to watch things that awaken, sensual desires that ought not be awakened. This is a recipe for for disastrous consequences. It's a recipe of sin. And so parents need to understand the danger for their children it's, it's like saying to our children who've never lit a pile of brush on fire, here's a lighter, here's a gallon of gas, go and figure it out. We would never do that. We would never do that. I think it's similar in our own lives, in our own hearts. If our hearts aren't reined in in pursuing God, it's a recipe for sin with disastrous consequences. And this is what Jesus is getting at. When our hearts and our minds are filled with lust, there's adultery being committed in the mind and the heart. And if not checked and reined in, it leads to disastrous consequences. It can lead to very difficult circumstances and situations that marriages might not be able to climb out of. It can destroy families and destroy lives. And so James in James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. I know that men and women are wired differently for the most part. Men are drawn by things which are visual. And women are drawn through things which are emotional. But in today's culture with pornography and the provocative images scattered across every form of media, I think ladies are... As susceptible to similar lustful thoughts as men are. I think most often though. Most often. These thoughts enter our minds. And we have this choice. Do we dismiss them? Surrender them to God? Or do we continue to dwell upon them? And it's at that moment when we either dismiss them or continue to dwell upon them, that lust has then entered the mind. It has dwelt there because it has come up from the heart. And so here's my challenge to us this morning. So, so from, from self-control to modest dress, the believer is called to guard his or her heart and to walk in purity. We're to treat one another as those who are created in the image of God. We're to treat one another with respect. And brothers, we're to walk in self-control and godliness, not viewing women as objects for sensual pleasure, but sisters created in the image of God. And women likewise, we're we're to walk in self-control and godliness, seeking not to be a stumbling block through immodest apparel, but, but seeing men as brothers created in the image of God. Jesus says adultery isn't just the physical act. It begins in the heart. And it happens with every continuing look that leads to progressive imagination. This is the unholy thought life. Brothers and sisters, do your prayers look like, God, give me eyes only for my wife or my husband? Father, protect my eyes from sin. God, guard my heart from wicked desires. Guard my mind from lustful thoughts. We should take the advice of Job in chapter 31, verse 1, where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? The idea is, how could I look upon a young woman lustfully? We tend to downplay lust in our minds. Sure, it makes us feel dirty, but ultimately no one knows, right? That's wrong. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying that God knows. He sees the heart, and the heart is the heart attitude is equally condemnable before God as the action. Jesus gives two examples showing the urgency of guarding against the sin of lust. And in verses 29 and 30, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? Why? he says because it's better for one part of your body than to it's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell does everybody have two hands this morning two eyes no one's gouged out their eye or cut off their hand because of sin either we're sinless or we don't take this passage as literal The point, the point that Jesus is making is the problem of sinful lust, adultery of the heart, is so disastrous that we must take immediate action. Using hyperbole, dramatic speech here, to communicate to us this deep spiritual truth It calls us to take immediate, decisive action. The eye and the hand are simply part of the lust or adultery process, but they're not the root of it. And Jesus is using strong language here to get to the root of it, to teach us that that we must take sin seriously. Origen, one of the early church fathers, took this text literally till ultimately castrated himself and then later regretted it because the desire and the problem... Of lust. Never went away. It never went away. Removing the parts of the body. Doesn't remove the urge. And the inclination towards sin. And so Jesus means to drive home this point. That sin is serious. Sin is a matter of the heart. And true righteousness Begins in the heart. And so we need a heart change. And that heart change is something that only God can work in us. This is what Jesus meant when he spoke, through, or this is what the prophets meant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel when they spoke of, of the heart change, of the new heart that God would give us. And it's for this reason that the Beatitudes are paramount in righteous living. We must tenaciously guard against sin in our lives. Let me ask you, are you actively guarding against sin in your life? <clears throat> if so, how? How are you guarding against sin in your life? What are the steps that you're taking to guard against lust and thought? What's our thought, look, uh, thought life look like, brothers and sisters? Does someone hold you accountable? Is there someone who's going to ask you the hard questions? When was the last time, in you, time that you looked at a woman in lust, brothers? When was the, the last time that you looked at pornography? When was the last time that you, you dressed with the intent of being noticed by men? Is there a continual sin in your life that you're, you're struggling with? Jesus says it's urgent that we guard our purity. I realize the heaviness of this message this morning, but the second truth that we deal with because it's directly connected to the first there's a progression that jesus speaks to here lust leading to adultery leading to divorce and in verse verses 31 and 32 jesus speaks to god's design for marriage let me say as we dive further into this passage that if you're one who's walked through the difficulties of divorce and are now remarried my exhortation to you is to take this teaching and apply it to your current marriage. Perhaps you've realized some things that, that you could have done differently or even have lived with some, some regret. I would encourage you to confess those before the Lord and to focus to focus on your current marriage as the one to honor God through. If there's forgiveness that needs to be extended or forgiveness that needs to be sought, I would encourage you to do so immediately and to be free from the bondage of sin and shame, and guilt. But let us see in verses 31 and 32, God's design for marriage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, must makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus teaching us about marriage here? The practice for divorce had become a blatant reproach on God's design for marriage. The Mishnah. Excuse me. The Mishnah uh, records the scribes' interpretation and teaching of the Old Testament law, the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's what the Mishnah stated about divorce. The Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became Mute, if she had epilepsy, warts, or leprosy. Could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. Each day she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave the wool. If her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Rabbinic law also stated that certain physical defects of the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. A man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped. Turnip-shaped, shape, hammer hammer-shaped. It's silly, right? Was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in flat at the back. If she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. If she had no eyebrows, one eyebrow or bushy eyebrows. The unibrow was even in back then. If she had a pug nose. If she had eyes too high or too low. If she were cross-eyed. If she had no eyelashes, if if she had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, eyes big as a calf or small as a goose, these justified divorce. He could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, if her ears were too little or too floppy. If she had an overbite or an underbite, if she was missing teeth, had a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, oversized or damaged uh, organs, Dark complexion, bony ankles, or knees, swollen feet, if she was bow-legged, suffered from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, the sole of her foot, this is in the Mishnah, the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous, a man could divorce his wife if she ate something he had forbidden her to eat, if she visited the home of her parents, or if against her husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city to be near their daughter. a man could divorce his wife if she had a bad reputation if she burned his supper or if or if he simply found someone that he thought was prettier that really gets to the heart of it you know we laugh at the ridiculousness of such arguments But they're not so far from the reasons that so many marriages end in divorce today. And Jesus is confronting the sinful permissiveness of a culture who thinks that a man can divorce his wife and not be guilty of adultery under the law. But he's saying just the opposite. If you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, he says you're making her commit adultery. If you marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. There's no loophole here. Divorce violates God's design in marriage where the two become one flesh. This is Matthew chapter 19, Genesis chapter 2 from the very beginning. So this was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of Divorce. And the wording was that he would find some indecency in her. And so that's what this interpretation that I read from the Mishnah was all about, finding indecency. But Jesus states the correct way to understand the law is is to understand that the violation is that which is sexual immorality, not just anything that one wants. He says the biblical ground for divorce here is pornea, infidelity. And so in verse 32, everyone who divorces his wife except for this one reason makes her commit adultery. This this exception clause isn't intended to be a comprehensive teaching regarding divorce. Instead, see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is countering the common scribal and pharisaical practice of the day. Jesus isn't teaching comprehensively on divorce. And so we can't take this passage and build a, a comprehensive doctrine on marriage and divorce from this text alone. There are other Reasons given in Scripture for divorce. But taken in context of the culture and Jesus' teaching, we understand His prohibition against divorce and His exhortation to the righteous life that upholds the marriage covenant. So the list of reasons that marriages end in divorce today are almost as extreme as those listed in the Mishnah. Irreconcilable differences, which covers a whole host of ones that we read unhappiness, laziness, or hatred, and the list could go on. But So that the men don't feel slighted here, Mark chapter 10 offers a parallel text where Jesus addresses the man and the woman in the same manner. And the difference is Matthew is writing to a Jewish culture where Mark is writing to a Greco-Roman culture. And in the, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, a woman could divorce a man as easily as a man could divorce... A woman. So the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The woman who marries a divorced man commits adultery is what Jesus is saying. This is because in God's eyes, hear this, in God's eyes the union between one man and one woman is a union for life. And until that union, that one flesh union is broken outside of the marriage, the couple remains one flesh in God's eyes. And to break this union is sin. And sin is not to be taken lightly. We must realize that our sin is condemnable before God. Anytime we sin, we violate God's good and perfect will. This doesn't mean that we can't be forgiven and live committed to following Christ. God's grace is sufficient. And so for all of us who have sinned, His grace is sufficient. So I want you to know that neither divorce nor adultery are unpardonable sins, but, God, but violating God's design does lead to exponential hardship and suffering in our lives. It's also important for us to remember the challenge of this text is that we would live in purity and in holiness, that we would desire to bring honor to God through our marriages, through our thought life, That we would desire to live in a way that we live righteously before God. And so God has given us as his children new hearts through the new covenant of Christ's blood. And we have the Holy Spirit as believers to lead us and to to guide us. Even to guard, help us to guard our minds before the Lord. And so our challenge this morning, believers, husbands and wives, single Men and women, our challenge is to see the urgency of guarding our purity. Because when we allow our minds to walk down the trail of lustful thoughts, when we allow our hearts to be drawn into that, it brings sin into our lives, and sin is serious, and we need to take our sin serious before the Lord. Then also, for husbands and wives... You need to see that God desires, He intends, an endurance in our marriages. We should look different from the world. He's speaking to those who are to be light into other other nations. And yet, here they are trying to sidestep around God's law so that they might satisfy their own desires. So we're to recognize that God desires to reign our hearts in For our hearts to be pure before Him. And so, believer, are you seeking to walk in purity in heart and mind? Are you leaning on Christ for victory in the battle for purity in your life? In your marriage? Is there an addiction to pornography that needs to be put in check? Is there an unhealthy addiction even to social media that needs to be put in check? that draws your eyes away from Christ and causes you to stumble? Let Jesus' words be both an admonishment and an encouragement to us this morning. Let us repent and seek the Lord. Let us renew our minds in the word of God and let Christ reign in our hearts. Let us seek to walk in purity as God's people. Pray that the Lord's word words will challenge you this morning, challenge us to be men and women of purity, who who pursue holiness and righteousness in our relationship with God. Let us pray. Our Father, I pray that you would take your word and that you would draw us near to you god that you would cause us to seek forgiveness to take sin seriously even to the point where as the beatitudes say we learn to mourn over our sin father but i also pray that you would renew us renew our hearts and our minds Draw our eyes heavenward that we might walk with a purity of heart. That we might confess our sins before you, God, that you would protect our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would give us a holy desire to walk in righteousness, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, Lord, here are our hearts this morning. Take our hearts, Father. Conform our hearts, O Lord, to yours. That we would walk in righteousness and holiness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand this morning. And maybe for you, you need to just spend some time in prayer right where you're at. uh, Confessing your sin before the Lord and seeking purity. Whatever the case, I want to encourage you to respond as the Lord is leading you this morning.
1: Is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lives. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your bread in our lives. So we